Heroes first. Veterans together. Legacy forever. I want to thank you for joining me on this journey of getting to know our heroes on a much deeper level. I am your host, Josh White, and this is the Hero Front Podcast. Let's get after it. What's up, everyone? Josh White here, your favorite airman. I'm back. I'm fired up. Why? Because I just got to spend time with SEAC number three, John Wayne Troxel. The SEAC, a relatively new position to the DOD, the highest ranking enlisted member in the entire Department of Defense, the senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. John Wayne Troxel is number three, and if you're an airman, you might have heard of this position because for the first time in history, the fourth SEAC is an airman chief CZ. So SEAC number three, John Wayne Troxel, is essentially uh, a piece of military history. He's worked with General Mattis. He was part of Operation Just Cause in Panama, and in this episode, he talks about why the e-tool is so important to him, his leadership philosophy. He talks about the worst day of his life when an Iranian IED hit his team and the lessons that he learned from these events. He talks about his proudest moments as a SEAC, what he was able to accomplish. He tells me who his favorite airman is and what keeps him up at night. Truly, this is one of the coolest conversations I've ever had I learned a lot about military history and philosophy straight from someone who guided military operations on a global scale. You do not want to miss the hero's journey of John Wayne Troxel. Let's get after it. You know, uh, you know, when people retire, it's their decision on what they want to do. And if they just want to go fishing and not be bothered, God bless them. They serve their country honorably and uh, they ought to be able to do that. But I, I think there's a certain duty um, from a veteran and a retiree, um, especially if we're going to get after this 22 a day veterans that commit suicide, that we have to continue to build synergy from the current force and the veteran force, along with families, uh, that people, as they transition out of the military, the one, the main reason why people consider suicide is they have lost lack of purpose and I, and, uh, identity. And so let's uh, continue to bring, you know, the current force and our veterans together closer so that they can retain identity and purpose. And so when I got out, I, my, I do a lot, you know, not only for the current force, but I do a lot in veterans affairs to try and continue to help veterans, um, you know, get after that purpose and identity. So that's that's kind of what I do, you know. Um, but I will tell you, Josh, if, if it all ended tomorrow, you know, and the the phone stopped ringing and everything, I would be okay with it, you know, because uh, I'm still going to, I'll find something that will keep me occupied and keep me motivated and everything. But, uh, you know, it's a, an extreme honor that the phone keeps ringing and people want me to keep coming out. And if I can assist the active force, if I can assist CZ, the current CAC, and the current force by going out and, and motivating troops and, and firing them up and everything, I'll continue to do it. And so that's kind of what I'm doing now, man. Yeah. And, and I want to thank you for doing that because it's, you're, you're setting the way for all the retirees or people thinking of retiring or separating and, you know, yeah. someone like me where I'm, I just hit 17 years, you know, and 
it's possible I could be retired in four years. This could be my last assignment if that's the way things pan out. And so I'm already thinking like, what kind of life do I want to live outside the service? I don't want it to be a complete cut of all ties. Like I want to keep my veteran identity at some sort of it. And so when I see someone like you, I see how you're still getting after it. Uh, It's inspiring. And uh, it, it means a lot to us that you're showing us the way. And I appreciate that. Um, hey, I'm getting some feedback, so I'm going to put my headphones on. Okay, perfect. You We're kind of uh, on opposite sides of the country. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. You got the beats. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's much better. Yeah, no feedback now. Okay, perfect. So you are SEAC number three, correct? Yes. So it's a relatively new position because we're only on number four right now. Right. And the insignia itself didn't come out until you came along. Yeah. And so as an Air Force guy, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. I had never heard of that title before because, you know, the military is a big working (laughs) beast and and I was – pretty far away from the SEAC position, um, to be honest. Yeah. But uh, the reason that I know about it and the reason that so many airmen know about it today is because of the current SEAC, number four, Chief CZ. He's the first yeah. airman uh, to fill that role. And because of that, the Air Force and so many airmen are now aware of this guy, who he is and what the position is. Um, and so now as, a, as Air Force as a whole, we kind of are more familiar with that role. Um, and funny story, uh, I went to the, to the last in-person Air Force Association uh, conference in DC a few years ago, and I kept physically running into that guy, Chief CZ. Yeah. Like we just yeah. kept bumping into each other and just kind of like laughing, like, why do we keep running into each other? And then when I saw yeah. what he got picked for, I was like, oh my God, that was that guy that I kept running into. But I have to say the guy had like an aura about him or something. I don't know. There was just something that just stood out about the guy. Um, yeah. And so uh, I yeah, thought yeah. that was too cool that they picked an airman for that role. But, um, you know, since the Air Force as a whole, we're still we're still kind of learning what that position is. I was hoping you could kind of fill me and any listener in to what a CIA yeah. and what makes it so special. Yeah, absolutely. So the hierarchy of the Department of Defense, you have a secretary of defense below him, the senior military officers, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And then you have the service chiefs, um, you know, and obviously with the secretary of defense, service secretaries and service chiefs and service senior enlisted. But the secretary of defense and the chairman up until 2005 never had a senior enlisted advisor. And it was General Pace, Marine chairman, that finally came to a realization that he was the only senior officer that didn't have an enlisted advisor. And so the position was created then so that the chairman and the secretary of defense uh, would have a, a senior enlisted leader that could provide them direct feedback and give them the pulse of the force on all troops of the military, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, uh, Active Guard and Reserve. And then, you, you know, even the Coast Guard as well, even though they're, you know, Department of Homeland Security, they're still a military force. So I made it a point to, you know, that the Coast Guard was associated in everything I did. But if you look at what the service chiefs do, so let's take a uh, Joe Bass, for instance, she 
is responsible to uh, General Brown for, you know, the training, the education, the health, welfare, morale of all the airmen. And she has the ability to create policy, for instance, on education, which I think you all know in, in uniform changes, which are going to come out here pretty soon in the Air Force. Uh, and that's what all the service senior enlisted have uh, for their service chief. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is an advisor to the president and the secretary of defense and provides best military advice to the president. So he doesn't have uh, authority to create a lot of service-related policy. So the SEAC is being his advisor, senior enlisted advisor, the chairman. You don't have authority to create any of that stuff either, really, unless it's a joint kind of stuff. So your main focus has to be on gaining the pulse of the force, reporting that back to the chairman and SECDEF, providing them best military advice on the force, as well as to Congress and the administration. And so since you're responsible for all service members, that you have to get out of your comfort zone in that. I wore the Army uniform for 38 years, but I made it a point for four years as the SEAC to spend as much time with the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps and the Active Guard and Reserve as I did with the Army. And, uh, you know, I spent an, uh, 270 days out of the year I was on the road because General Dunford, Marine General Dunford, when he was the chairman, he told me, I need you out telling me what's going on with the force. He said, I don't need you in the Pentagon. He says, unless, you know, obviously for key and essential meetings or, or whatever and stuff like that, or testimony and stuff like that. So I spent the majority of my time traveling all over the world, seeing high-speed airmen like you, soldiers, sailors, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, active guard and reserve, you know, and reporting that back to the chairman and the SECDEF on, one, how's, how effective are they getting after their mission? Do they have the requisite resources and uh, personnel to accomplish their mission? And two, the national defense strategy that's created by the SECDEF and the national military strategy created by the chairman, is that being turned into action at the tactical level? And is it understood at the tactical level? And it ultimately, I was there to deliver the big why to the troops, the strategic why. Why are you here in Syria? Why are you here in Somalia or Yemen or any of these other places I went? And so uh, um, there was a multiple times like, I was in Colombia, you know, right after or right before the ceasefire between the Colombian government forces and the FARC revolutionary group there that they had been fighting for 50 years. And the Colombian forces had special forces advisors. And I went down there and visited. I sent a note back to the chairman and the SECDEF. SECDEF wrote me back, said, hey, thanks for this information. And he used that information in his testimony the next day when he was asked about Columbia. So that's kind of what the SEAC does. It's more art than science. And nobody at that level is going to tell you what you should be doing. But as you mentioned about CZ having that aura around him, at that level, you, you have to know what you should be doing. And your intuition, your experience and everything ought to tell you where you need to be and where are the points of friction that you need to be at to be able to give that best military advice to the chairman and the sector. Wow. It sounds like a very incredible and unique position. It's like you're this joint yeah. 
ambassador where yeah in a, in a digital age where we rely on video footage we rely on emails we rely on electronics you got to physically be that liaison and go in person to kind of bring that human aspect to the troops and giving them that message and then on the flip side in person you could say no i this is what i saw this is what i heard this is how the environment felt so that's just invaluable information um, yeah, and it's it, and Josh, it wasn't to circumvent any change, chain of command, but you know, like any commander who uses their command chief or or whatever, that is their direct agent for the troops, and so you know, commanders will get reports that come up through uh, echelon to tell them what's going on, uh, and and some of those reports may get filtered or clouded as they go higher up and by the especially at at the dod is by the time it gets to the chairman and the sec def it may be completely different but if you've got a senior enlisted leader that as secretary mattis used to call me his ten thousand mile screwdriver uh, you know and he could say hey you know i need to know what's going on in libya okay <laughs> i get on a plane fly that way link in with some of our elite special operations forces get into country and figure out what's going on on the ground and report that back uh, to the SecDef. That kind of real-time information for the chairman of SecDef is valuable, very valuable. And that's kind of what the SEAC does. Now, again, the SEAC's duties and responsibilities are outlined, but it's how the chairman decides to use you, okay? And like I said, with General Joe Dunford, it was about being out and telling him what's going on, and it was all about war fighting and uh and getting after the mission so uh general Milley may be using cz a different way i don't know i would tend to think cz's kind of being told to focus on the same thing um but uh that's up to the chairman gotcha thank you for explaining to everyone you know what that position is and and uh and yeah and if i could finish off of on that point okay yeah so when I took over from Brian Battaglia, Marine Sergeant Major, uh, his boss, General Dempsey, who was the chairman before Dunford, said, you have to give this job irreversible momentum. Because between one and two, there was a three-year hiatus where Admiral Mullen came in and said he didn't need a SEAC. So from that. 2008 to 11, yeah, there was no SEAC. And so I knew I had, to, I had to be out. The troops had to know who I was and what I did. And as Dunford used to say, the troops ought to be able to say, I get it now. Now I know why there's a SEAC. And, you know, when I first came in, you know, I started going to meetings. I had served previously in Korea for two and a half years as the U.S. Forces Korea Senior Enlisted Leader. Prior to that, I was the leader of all ground forces in Afghanistan. And, uh, and I was the senior enlisted leader for the rebalance in the Pacific. So I had been in joint and multinational environments for many years prior to being the SEAC. And when I came in, um, I was a little concerned in Washington, D.C. that we were not looking at the threats to our nation or what the troops' contribution to it. We weren't looking at, at that and studying it as much we should have. And that's when, you know, I wanted to send an inspirational message to the troops especially those that were in areas that they were fighting that we hadn't forgot about them. And that's when I kind of called out ISIS and told them they had two options. They could surrender or die. And, uh, and that was, that message was all 
to inspire the troops and intimidate the enemy a little bit. I think as a, an enlisted leader, you have to be inspirational and pro provide that inspiration to your troops. But there also has to be, if the enemy looks at you, says, holy shit, we don't want to deal with that dude, you know, or that outfit or whatever, you know. And so I never did that to, to get any press or anything. I did it to fire up the troops. And I think that's one of the reasons why folks all of a sudden were like, that's the SEAC right there, you know? And uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that message, uh, that, that gives us the mindset that we need. You know what I mean? The, mm -hmm. the, when it comes to competition, just period, dot, the mindset and where your head is at is monumental. And it could just be Spot one on. phrase. It could just be one little phrase like that that really resonates with everyone and fires us up to get us to that next level. Absolutely. You know, so when uh, the command chief uh, at uh, Minot asked me to come out, he said, you know, you know the deal. Why not? Why not? You know, it's out in the middle of nowhere, 60 miles from Canada. Not a lot to do. Um, close knit community, though, and everything. And not a lot of airmen like serving there and everything. And so when he said, hey, we just need to be fired up. We need a message here. COVID has, uh, you know, had a problem here. <clears throat> you know, Afghanistan now and everything. He says, we need to be fired up. And I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So I knew arm myself with some energy, get in there and talk passionately about what I'm passionate about. And, uh, and, and let's, let's get the troops fired up, you know? And, and so that's what I think as a SEAC you're there to do is that you come in and you just get everybody fired up and ready to, you know, go out and destroy something. If it's a threat to the United States, we're going to destroy it. You know? Hell yeah. You, I mean, you need to hear that words are our most powerful tool that we have. Yeah. Um, and so we absolutely need that. We need that. Um, so thank you for giving me the rundown. The one thing that I kind of skipped over in the beginning here that I usually do is I, yeah. I put everyone through what I call uh, the hero's gauntlet where I came up with three tailored yep. questions for you yep. uh, that I'm genuinely curious about to hear. And, and the first okay. one I have is what was the proudest moment that you had while filling that role of the SEAC? Um, there, there were tons of them. For four years, I was proud as ever. But I think the proudest moment for me was, and, and this was a collective effort between myself and the senior enlisted leaders. So Jim Cody was a SIMSAF at the time. He and the other. So this was when Congress was going to write into the National Defense Authorization Act that they were going to eliminate dual basic allowance for housing. And you may have heard of that, um, where, you know, two service members married instead of getting two BAHs, you're only going to get one. And that it's it's flat wrong for multiple reasons. One, we should not penalize a service member because they fell in love and married another service member. Right. But two, at the time when we did the research, there were 83,000 dual military couples in the DOD. Uh, 56,000 of those were enlisted and about 65% of them were E5 and below. So an E5 married to another E5 or, you know, A1C to A1C or whatever. So if this would have went into effect, the people that would have, it would have caused the most harm to were those that make the least amount of money in our force. And if, especially if it's two senior airmen married to each other, 
and they have children, they've got to pay for childcare and everything. And now all of a sudden, if you take one of those BAHs away, there's a conversation in that family that says one of us is going to have to get out. So when we talk about, uh, you know, enlisting great Americans and retaining great airmen or soldiers or Marines or sailors, it was completely counter to what we were trying to do. So myself, the service senior enlisted, we all penned a letter, signed it. The chairman and the sec def put endorsements on it. And it went, Senator McCain's office was the driving force. God rest his soul. We, that letter got over there and the language got pulled out of the, uh, the, the NDAA. So we, we were like, we got a victory. Next year, we had to do the same thing because Senator McCain um, tried to put the same language in. And this is what he was basing it off of. He went to San Diego Naval Base and he was doing a visit and he was talking to a bunch of lieutenants. And there were five lieutenants standing there, all single, who were rooming together in a beach house in San Diego, a multi-million dollar beach house. And he was like, how do you all pay for this? And he's like, well, we all get BAH. So his lens that he was looking through was based off of five officers at a San Diego base that all five put together could afford to pay the rent of a $2 million beach house. But that was an anomaly. That was not, not common what's going all. on across. Exactly. And so for two years straight, we won it. And then the last two years, the language wasn't even in it. So if I had to say any proud moment, it was when that second time that the language got out of the NDAA and his office said, we're not going to go through this again. It's a done deal. <clears throat> and guys like myself, and it was Kay Wright at this time, and the other service senior enlisted, we just... Uh, gave each other high fives. We just felt so good because we had accomplished something. And when you look at what the Joint Chiefs of Staff senior enlisted leaders are expected to do as a collective group, that's one of them right there because that would have affected service members in all of the services. And we came together as a team with the support of the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman. We got it done and, uh, and it, we did not end up seeing any airman that had to make a decision that one of their, the spouses may have to get out. So right. I would like say if, that's if probably the about If you think about like the decision-making process for folks that are kind of so far removed from, you know, the actual airman boots on ground, like what they're missing out on is those second and third order consequences, right? Like in, on, on their eyes, like, Hey, this is an easy way for us to save X amount of dollars. This is where we could put that money. And then someone like you supposed to say, Hey, time out. We're going to lose like a quarter of the force because of this. And we're going to be losing amazing people to our, our military. Yeah. And so you, you were that voice of reason to put the, you know, pump the brakes. So, you know, yeah. hats off to you guys. Thank you for that. I'm sure a lot of people are indebted to you that don't even realize it. <laughs> oh, they're not indebted to me. They're, they're indebted to their, their, I, every time I see people like that and they say, thank you. I said, all this means is I need you to work harder and be a better airman or soldier that you were or tomorrow that you are today. And you and your spouse have to continue to strive for excellence, uh, not demanding excellence out of you, but strive for it so you can be the best that you can be. I, I call that show up for yourself. Like, yes, we, we all know in our minds what we should be doing. We all have that expectation that we set for ourselves, And anytime we fall short of that, it kind of eats away. Yeah. At it, you know, so I love that. 
your vision is striving for excellence daily. You know, I love that. I have the exact same outlook. All right. So question number two, hopefully this isn't too corny of a question, but I'm actually really curious of the answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your favorite airman. My favorite airman. Mm-hmm. That, that is a tough one, <laughs> but I'm going to go out on a limb. I met him this weekend. Oh, wow. Or this okay. week, this past week. I have a lot of favorite airmen. Joe Bass is one of my favorite airmen and Kay Wright is one of my favorite airmen and guys that, uh, um, are, are retired now. Well, CZ is one of my favorite airmen, even though he's the SEAC now and he is, his title is SEAC and he's not a chief master anymore. He's one of my favorite airmen. And, uh, some of the retired guys like Jay France and some of these others are uh, Shalina Fry are, are my favorite. Airmen. So, you know, as a leader, I say, you got to be able to do three things. You have to be genuine in demeanor. There, you, there cannot be any smoke and mirrors with who you are. When the airmen or soldiers or, or sailors or Marines see you, it, it, it ought to be what they see. You know, there should be. And then you got to be transparent in your approach as well. And then last but not least, you got to lead by example. And how do you lead by example? You got to be present. You got to perform and demonstrate what you expect the troops to do. And then you got to be persistent in having a balance between compassion and discipline in building a cohesive team. So I met a guy on Thursday night. He is a command chief of the, of the uh, uh, security forces group there in the 91st missile wing. And his name is uh, Chief Master Sergeant Gerald Sully Sullivan. Old, crusty chief, 29 years in the Air Force. Uh, he's, he's got about another year left and he's done. But he is one of those defenders. When you, when you look at a defender and say, what, what should a defender look like? He looked like. And so, uh, you know, I do PT with the troops wherever I go. And uh, um, so he said, hey, I'll have you do PT with my tactical respons- response force guys. I said, uh, okay. I said, remember, I'm a 57-year-old retired grandfather now, okay? He said, hey, yeah, those guys are about tattoos and protein shakes, but they'll take it easy on you. So then when I saw the workout, I said, I told the NCO in charge, I said, hey, look, scale it back a little bit because I can't do a lot of running because I got arthritis in my knees and feet and stuff like that. And so uh, when I showed up that morning for PT, um, this this, uh, tech sergeant tells me, Hey, Chief Sully said to tell you that you're a punk because we had to ramp down this PT uh, event. And I said, really? The word wasn't punk. It was a different word, but I'm not going to use it. Okay. I think you follow me. Um, But he said, I said, really? I said, well, why in the F isn't he out here joining this? And then the tech sergeant says, uh, well, Siak, I guess he's a bigger punk than you. That's amazing. So, so I, I was able to spend two days with this guy. And when you talk now, he is one of those leaders that I would not let testify in front of Congress because, you know, he, he doesn't have a filter, um, too many F-bombs, stuff like that. But he is a genuine leader. He's transparent in everything he does. And he leads by example in everything he does. And I would have to say right now, at this moment, with all due respect to my battle buddies, Joe Bass, Kay Wright, CZ Cologne Lopez, and all of those, Shalina Fry, Jay France, Matt Caruso, all of those that 
one of my battle buddies over the years, uh, Sully Sullivan is probably my favorite airman right now. And, and right behind him is Tech Sergeant Garza, who was the tattoo and protein shake guy that asked me those questions and lead that kick-ass PT session that day. It was just phenomenal. And now think of this, Josh, how many, how many senior enlisted leaders would have took offense to a tech sergeant asking them that kind of question? You know, they're, you know, and, and Sully, Sully had been around me long enough and he kind of did you, he researched who I was and everything. He said, I guarantee you this guy's going to get a kick out of this. And, uh, and so afterwards, when it was all said and done, and later on in the day, we were having lunch together. And Sully said, he said, I knew I'd get that reaction out of you. He, and then he even told me, he said, how many senior enlisted do you think would take offense to that? I said, well, there, there are those out there that, you know, uh, that, that would uh, get upset if somebody, you know, there's some senior enlisted that are hypersensitive that if you said something like that to them, they would take it personal instead of laugh it off. Uh, because it was a, a fellow senior listed trying to make a joke and the tech sergeant had the intestinal fortitude to go through with the joke and then go through with the the intense smoke that he put on me afterwards so right i love that story yeah. and yeah being transparent and just and being the best you i mean you're not going to be effective yeah. in, in, until you can figure that out and We've absolutely all, we've all been there we've all been hey i'm gonna try this approach hey i'm gonna try to be like this person i feel like you know coming up in the military we all go through that and hopefully you know you learn from that and you find the best you and kind of realize what your strengths are what your weaknesses are and then once you get to figure that out that it, it's kind of frees you right you kind of have this feeling of freedom because you know yourself you know your limitations and and people pick up on that sincerity Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, okay. Question number three, what keeps you up at night? Um, okay. This is Troxel. Okay. Um, and uh, I don't speak on behalf of the DOD uh, or the current SEAC. I have full confidence in them and the service members and, and the, our entire military. Um, but what keeps me awake at night is when I see every day what happens, like, uh, you know, the, you just mentioned the second and third order effects. So we, we do a hasty, a hasty pullout. This is Troxel's opinion. We had a disciplined, protracted, orderly withdrawal going out of Afghanistan for the last 10 years. I was the sergeant major of all combat forces there 10 years ago when we started the withdrawal. We went from 130,000 to 120,000 while I was there. And over the years, we've gone from 120,000 down to 2,500. And then on the 14th of April, when the president announced that we were getting out altogether, I got concerned because for 20 years, we've been telling the Afghans, we're Shona by Shona, shoulder to shoulder. We're going to be with you everywhere and doing everything. And in my opinion, this abrupt, precipitous disorderly withdrawal um, has put a lot of people at risk. And so what I worry about is those 6,000 troops that are on the ground right now, those soldiers, airmen, Marines, sailors as well, um, that uh, they're going to be able to give them the resources and the time and space to be able to accomplish the mission. If we're giving them all of that, I guarantee you they're going to thrive in that environment and get the mission accomplished 
But also uh, what keeps me up at night is now that folks like the Taliban are back in power, uh, it's going to empower people like ISIS and Al Qaeda. And also it's going to empower people like China, who has a hundred year goal to rule the world. And they will come in and try to do some things to get after those precious gems that are in those mountains there that haven't been mined because of all the fighting that's been going on. Uh, so I just think in terms of competition with China and, and Russia, in terms of responding to conflict and in the end fighting and winning, um, I, th I think we put ourselves at a disadvantage here, especially when it comes to terrorists. And what keeps me awake at night is uh, will these terrorist uh, groups be able to grow, develop, uh, recruit, and export spectacular attacks back into places like Paris, Brussels, or worse yet, in the United States? Or will these groups be empowered so much and have so much influence that we will see more inspired attacks in the United States, like what happened in Orlando, you know, several years ago, five years ago in San Bernardino and in New Jersey. These inspired kind of attacks by these young men and women that were inspired by the radical ideology of these terrorists. That's what keeps me awake at night. And uh, so I just say a pray prayer every night for the three million men and women like you that serve in our active guard and reserve force and in your families that, uh, um, you know, that we will put you in the right place at the right time with the right resources so that you can accomplish the mission in a, in a very professional manner, anytime, anywhere, and under any setting. And I say this all the time, my wars are over. You know, I, I, I five different combat tours, but I will never go to war again, unless all of a sudden, you know, uh, something really bad goes wrong. And now we're arming everybody from 16 to 60 to fight, Troxel will not be fighting again. So all I can do is support the force uh, and, and say a prayer every night. But my, what keeps me awake at night is, will our troops be vulnerable somewhere or will our country be vulnerable uh, that will cause a spectacular kind of event to happen that will cost lives of Americans uh, needlessly? Wow, that was, that's very powerful. and. And although I haven't been deployed there myself, I, I a lot of my friends have, and I saw the heartbreaking photos of of people trying to jump on that plane, and all the posts on Facebook from my peers about you know they really care about these people, they worked alongside of them, and so it, it was really painful for them to to see those images and to see these people. Yeah. Just, so yeah, it, I, it was yeah, it was but Josh, I will, yeah, I, I will, I will submit to you though that um, it's not so much about where you've been and what you've done. It's about the oath you swore, you know, and you, along with the other 3 million, swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and you're willing to give your life to it. That's powerful. And we never say that enough about to our troops. Thank you for taking the oath to defend our freedom, our homeland and our way of life and the 300 million citizens out there. So whenever I get done talking, uh, like I did last week in Minot, you know, I always say thank you on behalf of myself, my family, and 300 million other Americans out here. Thank you for pre preserving our safety, our freedom, and our way of life. Um, and so 
yeah, it, I, my message is to everybody out there, I don't care what they're doing, uh, what job they're in, whether it's combat, combat support or combat service support or an administrative role, you swore an oath, the same oath that we all have. And uh, because you swore that oath and you're sacrificing your time, your life and your career to do this job, I give you a salute, brother. Hell yeah. So, sir, speaking of wars and battles, uh, when I was reading some articles about you and I listened to a, a few other podcasts that you were on, one thing that definitely stood out was um, Operation Just Cause. And you were a part of that. Yes. So every airman is familiar with that battle, I'll tell you, because um, when we study for rank, when we go through the Air Force history, there is a section on Operation Just Cause. Yeah. And so, you know, for you to have been a part of that, you're, you're essentially a piece of history. You're a witness to, the, to that event. Um, and because every airman um, has read Just Cause, studying in the pursuit of hopefully making rank, I was hoping you could run me through that day, uh, which I believe was December of 89. Sure. So um, 19 December. So just to, to kind of set the stage for this, there had been some things happening in Panama, um, you know, with Noriega and the Panamanian Defense Forces and Noriega's Dignity Battalions, kind of his thug bodyguards and everything in terms of, uh, you know, malign behavior with Americans. You know, at one point, a, a, uh, a sailor and his family were stopped at a checkpoint and they were assaulted. Another uh, Marine officer was killed at a checkpoint. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, bad behavior going on towards uh, Americans. And when uh, Noriega, when the election happened, where Noriega was not a, a legitimate election happened in Noriega, uh, Calderon was his name. Uh, President Calderon was elected. Uh, after the election and the results came out, Noriega's guys assaulted Calderon. And if you look in the history and you'll see he's just in a, you know, covered in blood from where he's been assaulted and everything. And Noriega basically was not going to have a peaceful transfer of power. And that's when, you know, it's the threat to Americans in Panama was high. The legitimate government was not being allowed to take power. And that's when president Bush decided to send in forces. So when I went to work on the morning of the 19th of December, we knew some things were going on. As a matter of fact, one of the platoons within my company, uh, little to us, little did we knew, had already been forward positioned in Panama to support efforts to take down the Comandancia, which is kind of like the uh, Noriega's headquarters. And so on the 19th of December, uh, I kissed my wife goodbye that morning. Our three sons were all, all uh, our, our two sons at the time were all young. And I told her, hey, look, half-day schedule starts today. I'll be back. We'll go Christmas shopping. Well, I got to work there at Fort Bragg, and uh, we got alerted. Now, getting alerted in the 82nd Airborne Division is not uncommon. Um, you know, constantly we're doing emergency deployment readiness exercises and everything. So, of course, us, you know, I was a young staff sergeant at the time. And the minute that happened, hey, we're on alert and everything. None of us at the time thought we were going to war. 
You know, we were like, oh, this is a bunch of bullshit. They're going to have us do an exercise during half day schedule, anything to take our half days away from us and everything. And uh, so you're thinking like, this is an exercise that's going to ruin your vacation time for the holidays. Yeah. I thought, are they going to make us do this? So, but anyways, so then we went and drew weapons. We went to the personnel holding area, still didn't know what was going on. And then all of a sudden we were told to go and draw live ammunition, grenades and things like that. And finally my platoon sergeant and I, Sergeant First Class David Freeman decided we're gonna find out what the hell is going on here. And we walked in to the Brigade Tactical Operations Center and we walked in, they were laminating maps of Panama. We looked at each other and I said, we know what we're doing now. And- uh, Yeah, if they're laminating you know, something- We talked to the officer. You're yeah. going. <laughs> so then, so we got back to the tent uh, and we got called out and we finally got briefed. We are going to do a combat parachute assault onto Torrijos Airport uh, and uh, at 0145 on the morning of the 20th. And uh, we are going to take down Noriega. The, 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 the primary mission was to capture Noriega, but to uh, eliminate the threat from uh, Panamanian Defense Forces and the Dignity Battalions. And so I went from that morning kissing my wife goodbye. And, you know, and, and then there was no cell phones back then or anything. So then the minute the alert happened, all the phone lines were cut so that there would no, be no intelligence leaks. Mm. So I could not call my wife and say, hey, look, I'm going to war. Oh, and wow, my thought kind of process terrifying. at the time was, yeah, when I went to, you know, I got all my combat gear, and my ammunition and weapons loaded up. And now I'm drawing my parachute. And oh, by the way, drop altitude 500 feet. So the reserve parachute is probably not going to work, you know? And uh, so uh, I just told myself, well, Sandra, my wife will find out sooner or later that I'm in combat. And so there we went. And, uh, and it, it's funny when we were flying down, the heavy drops aircraft were in front of us, the C-141s that had, you know, our armored reconnaissance uh, uh, assault vehicles, Humvees and all this other stuff. When they came in, they started taking anti-aircraft fire. So they dipped down below where the, the guns could traverse and they dropped their loads. And two of the vehicles, those Sheridan uh, assault vehicles, uh, the parachutes didn't open and they landed and just became sculptures on the drop zone. They just shattered, you know? Wow. And so we came in, hit the ground, got to our assault objectives. And the minute we started moving out, we started taking fire and everything. So this was the real deal. And, and I say this all the time. You, if you train for the worst day of your life, physically, mentally, emotionally, technically, and tactically, if you train for that and you train in under conditions that mimic combat, if even if you have no combat experience, when it, the time happens and all of a sudden the enemy is shooting at you, you will do what's right because you've been trained to do it and instinct takes over. And uh, we continued to get after that. And so for about five days, we were fighting every day to secure, not, we secured the assault objectives and then expanded the lodgement outside the airport to critical infrastructure like the Commandancia and some of these headquarters. And uh, basically on Christmas Eve, we had uh, eliminated the threat that it had either been killed, captured, or had surrendered the Dignity Battalions and the, uh, I'm sorry, the Panamanian Defense Forces, the Dignity Battalions, we called them 
the dingbats, they were still out there, you know, in the jungle and everywhere. And so uh, we had to go out and get after them. But overall, uh, right after Christmas, things died down. And so I finally talked to my wife. I snuck in to the Marriott Hotel down where the papal nuncia was. And if you read, read the history, Noriega holed up in this religious cathedral known as the papal nuncia. And of course, the United States forces aren't going to go into a religious uh, venue to, to, to conduct combat operations. So we surrounded it. We blared loud, heavy metal music and, and uh, stuff to kind of, you know, not allow him to have uh, any kind of peace. And so while, we, while I was pulling security there, I snuck into the Marriott Hotel and, you know, called my wife Collect. And so this was the first time in a week that I had talked to her. And it was a pretty emotional conversation. Uh, the first letter I wrote her was three days in and it was on the back of a, a meal ready to eat wrapper. I just kind of penned it and I still have it to this day. Um, wow. We kind of wrote it in, in, you know, free mail, you know, because you're deployed and she got it and everything. But uh, yeah, and then on the 9th, uh, or excuse me, the 12th of January, uh, we returned back to uh, Fort Bragg. So this was, uh, you know, in terms of the deployments we see now, Panama, all, be all of being dangerous, and we lost 18 Americans there, and uh, four with the, the units that I was associated with, with about 50 severely wounded. Um, this was kind of a, lack of a better term, a sexy deployment. You parachute into combat, you kick the shit out of the enemy, you restore order, give Panamanian citizens uh, a, a hope for a better future. And then three weeks later, you're home, you know? And so, right. Yeah. Um, three weeks. You did all that in three weeks. That's that's three weeks. Impressive. Yeah. And uh, so basically course, everything was, you trained yeah. for this kind of fit that template that, you know, the chaos of someone trying to overthrow a government, you guys dropping in, like it, it yeah. fit what you were training for, for years. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, the most of it was the mental and emotional part of it that, you know, and I, I try to convey this to our service members, regardless of what their job is, because especially in a, in a environment where there may be a non-contiguous battlefield or there is no front line or whatever, you can't say I'm in an administrative role. I don't have to worry about being ready to fight and win, especially if we have to go up against uh, China or Russia or North Korea or Iran or even against terrorists, they're going to look for vulnerable targets. And generally, you know, and this is not passing judgment on anybody, vulnerable targets are rear area kind of folks who aren't accustomed to saying, I got to be ready to kill somebody today, you know? And so I try to tell people all the time, and Panama was because there was no front line in there. And, uh, and it was the same with my deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And you've got to be ready to face the conditions you can encounter on the worst day of your life in combat and not just survive it, but thrive and win and learn from that. And it starts with your physical, mental, and emotional approach to your job every day and getting ready, being a tactical athlete and getting in peak operating condition. You get after that initially, your technical and tactical uh, expertise that you have to hone will come a lot more easier. And that kind of happened to you, right? Um, I think a, another part of the a podcast I heard was the 
Iranian IED. And, and I believe a part of that story was you were prepared, but not everyone else was prepared. And that's kind of when you yeah. saw like, holy cow, like it's not just me that needs it. Like we all need to be in this to, to win it. So I, I, I'm glad you brought that up, Josh. I, uh, I, you know, complacency hits everybody. And especially over protracted deployments, I think you know that if you're doing the same thing every day for weeks and months on end, you know, complacency is right there and you have to fight it every day. And I had, uh, you know, I continued every day to make sure I was PTing, that I was hydrating, that I was eating right. And that because in the summer in the Middle East, as you know, I mean, it's brutal. And then when you add, almost hundred pounds of kit and weapons on top of that, um, you can go down in a hurry. And so when we went out of the wire that day and I call it the worst day of my life, July 19th, 2007, you know, a day like any other day, we went out on patrol, but I had turned all of the readiness stuff over to my subordinate non-commissioned officers, which is what I should do or what any leader should do. Um, but when we got out there and got in the fight, and, uh, you know, we had Corporal Brandon Craig was killed in action. Uh, Major Danny Dudek was severely wounded. We had to call in a medevac to get Dudek out of there. And as I was assisting the medic with uh, treating Dudek, while our boys in the quick reaction force were neutralizing the enemy, uh, then when we got ready to roll to the helicopter, the flight medic from the helicopter came over and I had two NCOs with me. And carrying Dudek on that litter, and this man has a spine, spinal injury uh, from shrapnel in his spine. So you got to be very careful. And it's 300 meters over rough and uneven terrain under fire with all this combat gear on. And as we got 100 meters and going over this rough and terrain, one of my NCOs started becoming a heat casualty. But then another one of my NCOs started becoming a heat casualty. Then the flight medic started becoming a heat casualty. And I was like, and so I was not a happy camper at that time. And I was dropping a lot of F-bombs on these NCOs saying, this is why we PT. This is why we train for the worst day of our life and everything. So we got Dudek on the helicopter, got him evac'd. And, you know, he got into surgery and everything. And he's, you know, he still has trouble walking now. He uses a wheelchair at times and crutches. But reflecting afterwards as we were taking Brandon Craig to the mortuary, uh, his remains to the mortuary, I said I had created in my own mind or in my own uh, ways an imbalance between compassion and discipline. I had become overcompassionate and underdisciplined, and I allowed uh, my force to be able to do what I thought they were doing the right thing. And these are two leaders, you know, that were responsible for other people that were falling out on me. So I learned a lesson then never again will I allow that imbalance in my leadership approach to ever happen. I will continue to be disciplined and, and enforce discipline while being compassionate at the same time. And I will not let there be an imbalance. I learned a huge lesson from that. Definitely. there, And that's leadership, right? It's the balance and tailoring your approach and, and every person that you encounter in every situation that you're going to encounter is going to take a different level of each one. And so Absolutely. you just got to get after it and get used to falling on your face a few times until you get it right. But I think that's what held Bingo. me back for so long was, you know, I was so afraid of getting it wrong 
that I didn't realize that getting it wrong is part of the process. You have to kind of yeah. get through that, uh, that to, to realize, you know, what your strengths and weaknesses are. So no, I love that. And one thing I love about the army too, by the way, that I really wish the air force would adopt more is, as how you look at PT. Like y'all take PT for real serious. And in the air yeah. force, the, the, the leaders like senior NCOs, like myself, we typically aren't allowed that time due to mission restraints. And we have to kind of find it on our own time. And, and you'll see a lot of us starting to get overweight because we couldn't find that time. And, or we have to sacrifice time from our family to try to squeeze in some exercise. And, and then when I look at the army, they're all in it together. They're all working out. They make it a priority and you get a good workout and you're going to have um, the rest of your day is going to be easy compared to, you know, getting smoked that morning. So like yeah. it, it just mentally gets you in the right place. And I see that now, like as, as a, a 36 year old with two young kids and, you know, I have, I have experience behind me now and I see the value in it and it brings teams together when you do like group workouts. And I just think it's so underappreciated uh, and other in, in the air force. And I, I really, really hope to see one day that it, it kind of gets a little more love that it should get. So this is uh, my response to that is this. Uh, so when I, for three years, um, you know, General Goldfein was my next door neighbor, lived across the street from me on Fort Myer. Kay Wright was probably one of the closest friends I had. And those two were exercising all the time, exercising all the time. And, you know, I think, and, and now you see CQ Brown and Joe Bass exercising all the time. I just saw Joe Bass the other day on social media. She arrived in Japan. The first thing she puts is my team and I got a great workout. So she flies 13 hours across the international date line. And her biological clock is jacked up. But the chief mass sergeant of the Air Force, the first thing on her mind is me and my team are going to go get a workout. And so I think the examples are there at the strategic level. The more they go down through the operational and the tactical level, leaders at that level put a premium on those kind of foundations like physical fitness and wellness that are the foundation for everything else we do. And those are what, that's one of my talking points, you know, uh, that, you know, if we really genuinely want to take care of the force so that someone is healthy and well over a 20 or 30 year career, then we've got to enforce fitness, nutrition, sleep, all of these things in it. I got it. Mission requirements and, you know, fixing and flying aircraft is a tedious job. <clears throat> but that's where the, the leader comes in and has to find the time. I stole this uh, phrase from the Air Force called fighter management. And I think you know what it is. It's the pilots got to get X amount of sleep before they can get behind, a, <clears throat> you know, in a cockpit or anything. And I absolutely agree with it. But I think that applies to everybody. And if we're not getting the right amount of sleep, we're not hydrating, we're not eating right, we're not exercising over time, the, the effectiveness and cohesiveness of the force is going to erode. And in the end, readiness and lethality will suffer. And as you just mentioned, <clears throat> and the way I call it, there is no better team building event than a group of people that work together, sharing in hardships. 
And if you give them an hour every day that they can get out and do a killer fitness session, you are going to build a cohesive team and you're going to learn more and people are going to open up because you're sharing in the same kind of stuff. So I, I, uh, in defense of your service and others that are, are more technically focused, I think it, as it comes down through the strategic to the operational, the tactical level, leaders at a certain point put a premium on it. And when you do that, then you're, you're telling other commanders at lower levels to prioritize, you know, and obviously they're going to prioritize mission readiness and uh, operational readiness rates of their fleet, whether it's aircraft, vehicles or whatever, and then people. And when we should have that the other way around, let's focus on the operational rate, readiness rate of the people. And then the, the aircraft and the vehicles will take care of itself. So uh, I say that in defense of your service because uh, the senior leaders I know are leading by their example. Definitely. Um, I think what we run into trouble is when we pretend that we're not human beings. And <laughs> I mean, speaking for myself, I used to be maintenance and now I'm in the medical field. So I've seen multiple career fields and um, yeah. in both of them, it, it wasn't a priority. I, I would say there are certain times where we could do it, but it definitely was never a priority. And I became super unhealthy just being that young airman who didn't really know better. And then once I was told I didn't have to work out, you know, I never did. And uh, all I did, yeah. was, all I did was work on the fly line, get home, drink beers. And before I knew it, <laughs> you know, I, I was not in good shape. Um, and it took a lot yeah. of soul searching and, and discipline to get me out of that state. And luckily, I'm still here today uh, in serving. But uh, it was a close call for me, for sure. Yeah. Well, you look like you're in pretty good shape now and you look like you could uh, fit right in that group of the uh, tattoos and protein shakes, guys. Yeah, I got some. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> yeah. So PME hard is a phrase that I came up with. Um, it was about 16 years ago. No, no, it was uh, it was about 14 years ago when I was in Iraq, just right before the worst day of my life. And I I realized as you know, I was training functionally back then. So before human performance and H2F was sexy, I was doing it, you know? So I was doing functional kind of fitness training with suspension trainers and, and kettlebells and stuff that was away from back then, the traditional bench squat and deadlift that are, you know, running around, you know, at the gun show and everything. And then I was doing extensive cardio, either running, exercise, bike, uh, stuff like that, jumping rope. And I noticed when I would be out patrolling every day, I was out patrolling with a platoon somewhere in my brigade. Uh, and we would, uh, these patrols would be like 10 kilometers long over rough, uneven, and sometimes steep terrain in hundred pounds of kit. And I noticed after a while, when we would stop to take a security halt, I would take a knee and I would see some of my soldiers that were 20 years younger than me having to stand and bend over because the gear was killing their back. And I could tell that they were not training the internal body armor, the core, the hips, the lower back, the quads, the, the important kind of muscles that get us to be explosive and get us to be functional on the battlefield. And then the insidious enemies that we had over there, I lost 54 uh, soldiers in that 15 months with over 500 severely wounded. I knew against this enemy, against this terrain, against these weather conditions, we didn't 
we couldn't just be tough. We had to be hard and we had to be physically, mentally, and emotionally hard, meaning not easily penetrable and the exact opposite of soft. And so I kind of coined this phrase as a part of my PT program and, you know, resiliency program for every level I've gone to. And, uh, and so PME hard has been a phrase I've been using for 14 years. And basically it means that it is someone that physically is physically, mentally, and emotionally hard and conditioned to be able to not only withstand the conditions they could face on the worst day of their life in combat, but they can thrive and they can win and had the reserve to continue on to a subsequent objective that they have to, to fight and win again. So when I retired, I dubbed my consulting firm PME Hard Consulting, and it is about providing or leadership and human performance solutions for organizational excellence. And uh, so that's what it is now. The eTool Nation came when I was the SEAC, you know, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, you know, I was concerned with how we were looking at threats. And I went to a deputy subcommittee meeting, one of the, my first few months as the SEAC at the Eisenhower building of the White House. And I'm in a meeting there and it's a meeting about how do alternate ways of influencing foreign terrorist fighters to not go to places like Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan and fight. And there was a bunch of PhDs in there from several of the uh, you know, other elements of the cabinet. And this one uh, young lady got up and uh, said, well, you know, we need to look at giving an ISIS jobs program. And I thought, she goes, yeah, if we give them a job, they won't go over. And I thought this young lady has no idea the threat she's talking about. Now, don't get me wrong. Terrorists in places like Somalia, Niger, Libya, places like that. Yeah, they, they, they are live in poverty and they're motivation to join these insidious organizations is born out of poverty. But when you look at the foreign terrorist fighters in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, generally they come from countries like Belgium, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and they come from affluent families and their motivation is born out of this radical ideology. And so when I heard that, I was like, man, we got to make sure we're seeing this right. And then more and more, you know, the attention that people in Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan were not getting in Somalia and Libya and all those other places. Um, and that's when I said, you know, I'm going to send an inspirational message to the troops and hopefully ISIS will think twice. And so um, I was, as a matter of fact, I was in Syria. Uh, Raqqa, Syria, and this was uh, in 2017. I was with our our most elite army special mission unit. And I'm on a roof of a building watching the fall of Raqqa. And I'm up there for about four hours with senior enlisted leaders from the unit and from their higher headquarters. And I just blurted out because ISIS, you know, the Syrian Democratic Forces with U.S. advisors, uh, along with U.S. air power, you know, from the Air Force and everything. And and army mortar systems and artillery, Marine Corps artillery, we were just hammering these ISIS targets. And when there would be a lull in the fight, all of a sudden a suicide vest or a suicide vehicle would come out. They were a very resilient enemy. And finally, I just said, you know what? Excuse my language. These assholes got two options. They can surrender or die. 
I said, you know, they surrender, um, you know, we'll treat them humanely, give them three hots and a cot, safeguard them to their detainee facility holding cell and give them due process. But if they choose not to surrender, then we will kill them with extreme prejudice, whether that means dropping bombs on them, shooting them in the face, or if need be, beating them to death with our entrenching tools. And so uh, one of the sergeant majors that was up there with me said, you know, you ought to put that in your report to the chairman and the SECDEF. So I did that. And Secretary Mattis wrote me back and said, keep saying that. That fits into it fit into his narrative of we're not just going to defeat any enemies of the United States. We're going to annihilate. And so I had been saying that for several months. And so it was Christmas uh, three years ago and uh, on a U.S. tow tour and General Dunford and myself and Medal of Honor recipient Flo Groberg uh, were up on stage in Bagram firing the troops up. I had an e-tool in my hand and I kind of said my speech and fired him up. And there happened to be a Washington Post reporter in the audience. And uh, he took offense to that. And he approached me afterward, kind of a short little chubby guy with crew serve cameras around his shoulders. And uh, he says, hey, you're campaigning for troops to commit war crimes. I said, no, I'm not. I said, we teach soldiers, Marines and battlefield airmen how to use non-standard weapons to kill the enemy. He goes, well, I'm going public with this. I'm, I'm, you know, writing an article on this and everything. This is wrong. And I said, knock yourself out, buddy. So then as he walked away, I thought to myself, I was like, oh, shit, you know, what's going to happen now? And so I called up my public affairs guy, uh, Master Sergeant Retired Rob Kotor, great American. I love him. Uh, he was back in Fort Meade, Maryland, Christmas morning, opening Christmas presents with his family. And I said, hey, this Washington Post reporter just said this, what should we do? He said, let's beat him to the punch. He said, send me a photo of you holding an entrenching tool in front of the troops, which the chairman's photographer had already done. And uh, we'll put your quote on and we'll do a Facebook, Instagram, Twitter message on it. And when he did that, it went viral. I mean, it went, uh, you know, foreign nations, media in Germany and France picked it up. Uh, CNN, New York Times, Fox, the Fox five did a special on it. And, you know, I was getting notes from all over the planet, Josh, from commanders, senior enlisted troops saying, thank you. Thank you. We needed to hear something like this, but in Washington, DC, I got ostracized big time for this. And when I got back from DC, I caught a lot of, um, flack over what I said, not from general Dunford or secretary Mattis, but from others there that took offense. I mean, I, there was even one three-star that told, came to my office and said, you do realize enlisted are meant to be seen and not heard. And I was like, man, this dude does not know how close he is to getting the Garvin stomp put on him right here, you know? But anyways, so it kind of started a movement and this sailor came in a couple of days later and he had his entrenching tool. He said, will you sign it? And I said, yeah, I'll sign it. So I signed it and all of a sudden, people started sending me entrenching tools and everywhere I went, I was signing entrenching tools and in this shovel that went from a primary device to dig or build or construct now became a symbol of living the warrior ethos and that by any means at your disposal, you were going to fight and win. And so when I retired, I decided to, you know, I said, Hey, look, I, I reached out to, an audience. And I said, I'm creating an eTool Nation apparel line. And I have an eTool Nation Facebook page. And, uh, and I'm, now I'm 
selling and trenching tools, you know, and all of it was designed so that I could have a way of giving back, you know, to, uh, uh, to nonprofits, you know, the, like the Lighthouse for the Blind and, uh, you know, a Soldier's Child Foundation that really gets after supporting Gold Star families and everything. So now the eTool Nation is a movement and it is everywhere I go, people want to talk about the eTool Nation. And I think for all the reasons that I initially said it, it inspires people. And when you get some bureaucratic stuff that comes across the media, you're looking for something that there's no BS and hey, let's hear it, you know? And, uh, and so that's what it's done now. And so eTool Nation is, uh, is a movement and it's growing every day. And I've signed almost 2000 of these entrenching tools uh, and they keep coming in. As a matter of fact, I got one down here right now, a guy sent me. So all I'm trying to do is just continue to fire people up, uh, continue to you know, get them to strive to be the best that they can be, even if they're not in the military, whatever they're doing in life. And it's taken off like wildfire, man. I, I love that movement. I and absolutely. I need an e-tool signed by you in my office or I'm not going to be complete. I'm going to Let's do it. Yes. We need to make that happen. And I will tell every airman what that e-tool is when they come in my office, but I must have one. And I'll tell you, I love the symbolism of this sturdy, reliable tool that y'all are so used to and so accustomed to seeing, but then to put, you know, spin it and give it this message of, Hey, at the end of the day, you need to win by any means necessary. Like, what a powerful Absolutely. message. I, I love yeah. that you did that. And we get so lost in, like you said, the bureaucracy. And yeah. we, we lose sight of, like, why we're here and, and, and the drive that we need to win. We kind of lose sight of that sometimes. So for you to kind of get our attention back on what's really at stake here by using this tool as an image uh, of what we're all about is just is beautiful i love that and i must have one <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely let's do it man all right sir so i have one five i've kept you really long and i apologize but i genuinely love uh, no hearing, worries i loved hearing these stories from you um so this one went on a little bit longer but the last question and i have to hear this is what was it like working for secretary mattis one of the most intimidating leaders we've ever had on our team what was it like working for a guy like that so uh, him along, so much like, you know, the chief, chief master of the Air Force advises the chief of staff of the Air Force and the secretary of the Air Force. So my two bosses were the chairman, which happened to be General Joe Dunford, Marine, known as Fighting Joe Dunford. And then you have Secretary Mattis and whoever's, you know, whether it's chaos or mad dog, they, these two men were the consummate military leaders. And elder statesmen and just proven war fighters. And it was just an honor. And the first time I traveled with Secretary Mattis, and he, put, he and I were on stage doing a town hall together. I, it was almost like I was having an out of body uh, event because it was almost like I was standing over here looking at myself and Secretary Mattis on stage saying, dude, you are on stage with arguably the most revered warfighting leader in the history of the United States military. Or even when I would be on stage with Dunford, it was the same way. One of the most revered 
war fighting military leaders. It was just awesome. And all the things that you hear about Secretary Mattis in terms of his focus, his energy, the warrior monk, it, it was all true. But one thing he was good at in Dunford too, they never forgot where they came from. And they empowered me so much to get out and do things. And I'll tell you, this is a mark on Secretary Mattis, the kind of person he was. So President Trump gets inaugurated on 19 July, 2017. The next day, he swears in Secretary Mattis in the Pentagon. On, that was on a Friday. On Monday, the first meeting he had that Monday morning was breakfast with myself and the service senior enlisted. He's been on the job basically three days, and the first meeting he has is with the enlisted because he wanted to know what was going on with the force. Powerful. And uh, it was just an honor and a privilege and probably the highlight of my 38-year career was working for Dunford and Mattis at the same time. Two Marines, you know, who would have thunk it? A 38-year Army guy working for those two people. It was just phenomenal. And uh, uh, it's something I will never forget the rest of my life. That's incredible, sir. Thank you for sharing that because, you know, it's not every day we get to, t you know, we get to hear from someone who worked for these, like, incredible yeah. human beings that are just unlike anyone else. So thank you for sharing that and everything else. It's been so cool talking to John Troxell in person. I've absolutely loved this episode and I want to thank you so much for your time. Is there any last departing message that you'd want to give uh, the Hero Front audience? Yeah, if, if, if you're in uniform right now in active duty, you know, there's a lot of, you know, consternation with, uh, with Afghanistan, but know this. Um, we've done our duties. Uh, everyone that has ever served in Afghanistan has done their duty. And at the tactical level, we have always been successful. And that's something to be proud of and, and to take with you in your life experiences. Be proud of the service. Honor the 2,400 men and women that did not make it back, uh, that gave their life in defense of freedom, as well as the thousands upon thousands of Afghan service members that have given their life in defense of their country. And in the end, uh, if you're someone in uniform, be proud of who you are every day. Because I know this, not only from 38 years of serving in the last four years as the SEAC, but in all my travels now and my communications that are global, the United States is still the most respected military in the world and the number one partner of choice for global peace and security. Regardless of what the media says, regardless of what celebrities may say, the United States military has not fallen in the eyes of the international community. And that's something to be proud of. So to all the men and women of your audience there, especially those that are still in uniform, God bless you all. Thank you for defending our freedom and homeland in our way of life and keep pounding and keep striving for excellence. Boom. Yes. Boom. Yes. That's my thing. Boom. Boom. I, every time I see that boom, I get so fired up on Facebook. I'm like, should I exercise? And then I see that boom post and I'm like, boom. I'm like, let's, let's go. do it. Let's do it. So I just, again, I want to thank you. SEAC number three, John Wayne Troxell, American hero, a piece of history, and a veteran who is still getting after it to this day, still fighting for the troops, still fighting for the freedom, and still firing us up. I want to thank you 
from the bottom of my heart for being there for us, for being that that coach, that mentor, that leader that we need, especially now, and, and not giving up on us and still showing up to the fight to help us any which way you can. It means the world to us. And I think I speak on behalf of a lot of different service members when I say just thank you for being there. Thank you for showing hey. up for us. Well, thank you, Josh, for what you do. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor to be here with you today and have this great conversation. And uh, I'm always here if you need me, brother. I'm in the bullpen. All I need is a few warm-up pitches. You need me to come out and take down the, the order in the bottom of the ninth. I got your back, brother. Hell yes. Boom. Boom. <laughs> All right, everybody. That was the hero's journey of John Wayne Troxel, and we are out. What's up, Hero Front fam? Josh here. And I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to that episode in its entirety. I owe you a hug. And the next time I see you, let me know how many hugs I owe you and we'll get after it. Before you turn me off, though, I want you to subscribe on YouTube to the Hero Front Podcast and give me a five-star rating on Facebook or Apple Podcasts. It would be much, much appreciated to get your love and support. Again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us on this Hero Front journey. And I will see you on the next episode. Let's get after it.